0: with me in your Bible or find your bulletin insert that has our passage of Scripture printed upon it. We're looking at the 8th chapter of the Gospel of Mark uh, today, a very famous passage where Jesus tells us how He wants us to live for Him. We'll begin to read at verse 31. We want to use this as a unison reading and read all the way through verse Thirty-eight. So let us read the Word of God together. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation Of Him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. Now, I'll admit as I begin to talk about this that most of you don't have to think about these kinds of things. But whenever pastors are resigning at one place in this small denomination of ours and, and going to another congregation, great pains are taken to make sure that the news is told in the proper way and by the proper person. You know, a pastor wants his own congregation uh, to hear his resignation from him not from a text message or not from uh, Facebook or any other place from which it might come. And because you look kind of somber right now, let me remind you, I'm I'm not about to resign. Uh, I had to say that to the early congregation because they were really looking in a bad state. Uh, But, you know... What I want you to hear is that when you called me as a pastor some ten years ago, those of you in the church then, you probably don't remember, uh, but you had the meeting early. You met right about the time the 11 o'clock service would begin, and you did that for this very purpose that I'm talking about, so that I could resign to the Peachtree Corners Church and them not hear it from anyone else, except for me, and we even had it all planned out. Uh, The chairman of your pulpit committee was going to call my wife, who was waiting in my office while I'm in leading worship at Peachtree Corners on the same day, and tell her on her cell phone whether you voted in favor to call me or not. And we had a plan, Sarah and I did, that if your answer was yes then when she walked in the sanctuary, and of course she was going to be coming to worship late, when she walked in, she would come all the way down and sit on the front row. And I would know that I could go ahead and resign. And if she came in and sat anywhere else, I knew to keep my mouth closed. (laughs) Well, what you don't know is that you must have taken your time. Because I was getting ready to preach that morning in the worship service and I still had not seen Sarah come into the sanctuary at all and I began to perspire sort of like Brian Bolt used to up here in this pulpit. But finally she walked in, she sat on the front row, she gave a nod, yes, like that. And her timing was important, you see, because on this particular day... I had decided that I would not resign after the end of the service and after the benediction. I was going to make it part of the sermon because I was doing that for two reasons. One is the sermon was on God's call anyway, and I thought what a wonderful illustration to talk about God's call within the context of a pastor leaving one place and going to the other. And the other reason I decided to do it that way was because I thought emotionally I would be able to get through it easier if it were part of the sermon and not in a standalone announcement at the very end of the service. So, I was preaching along, coming to the end of the sermon, and I began to talk about how, you know, when God calls us, to something, He always calls us away from something else. I mean, think about Abraham. God placed His call upon Abraham. He called him to a land that He would give him and his people in the future. And at the same time, Abraham is called away from his family and his homeland. And so I was explaining all of that and I was talking about how God had taken away my call to them and had given it to the First Rock Hill Church. And as I was preaching, I could see that even though they were hearing the words, they really weren't understanding what I was saying. Or most of them weren't. There was no wailing and weeping and... (laughs) gnashing of teeth like there had been every other time I had ever resigned from a congregation. There were just a lot of bewildered looks as I was preaching. You know, some things don't ever change. Uh, But you could tell on a few faces they were thinking, "Did, did he just say what I thought he said? Did he really say that? And this is similar to what is happening with Jesus and His disciples in this passage. He's just given them some very important information about His call. We read where He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and then rise on the third day. The text doesn't make it very clear, but I imagine these disciples also had bewildered looks on their faces. And they were probably saying to themselves, did he just say what I thought he said? Peter, always the impulsive one, has heard enough. We don't know if he understands the full package, but he catches enough of the meaning to take Jesus off to the side and begin to rebuke Him. And when we understand what the Jews of that day and time believed about the coming Messiah, we can understand why Peter has that kind of reaction. Because all of their lives, good Jews, were conditioned to think of the Messiah in terms of conquest, in terms of power, in terms of of military might. This notion that Jesus as the Messiah would be rejected and not only that, but killed, that's impossible. That's unthinkable. And Peter begins to tell him so. Now, in surveying this picture of Peter's rebuke, of Jesus, the great reformer John Calvin says, we see that men in their inconsiderate zeal do not hesitate to pass judgment on God Himself. Think about that. We don't hesitate to pass judgment on God Himself. And while we're amazed that Peter would actually take Jesus to the side and begin to rebuke Him, I mean a disciple taking his master aside in that day and time, it's unheard of. But how many times do we do the same thing to God? How many times do we judge God and His motives? when it comes to our own lives, and what God allows or causes to happen in them and with them. We're we're exactly like Peter. We want to see things our way, not God's way. In Peter's mind, the way of rejection and death surely cannot be God's plan for His Messiah. And yet the answer is right there in Isaiah 53, isn't it? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised For our iniquities, the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. You know why the Lord has laid those sins on the Messiah? We find the answer in that same passage. It's because all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned to our own way. You see, we want things our way not God's way. And do you understand what's really happening here? Peter's rebuke of Jesus is precisely why Jesus had to go to the cross. Just like every time you and I go our own way instead of God's, that's why Jesus had to go to the cross. Now what we have to remember here is the context of these words in the paragraph right before our passage. This is where Jesus is asking His disciples, who do men say that I am? And they answer, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah or or one of the other prophets. And Jesus asks them, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You're the one that generations of Jews have waited upon. And Peter gets the answer right. But as we've already seen, Peter is all wrong. You know, oftentimes in the Christian faith, we learn and and grow and mature so that we know something important that we should know, just like Peter does in this text, when He answered that Jesus was the Messiah. And then God brings us to a place where He wants us to move to an even higher level of maturity. And that's what's taking place in this passage. And lots of times, to move to that higher level of maturity, we have to be pruned back so that we can then grow stronger. I think this is true for us in our individual Christian lives. I think it's true for congregations as well. And I know that Peter did not enjoy his pruning by Jesus Christ because Jesus said to him, Get behind me, Satan. It's just like the temptations I was having in the wilderness. You're not on the side of God. You're on the side of men. But notice... Jesus doesn't throw away Peter because he sinned and was wrong. Rather, he continues to teach him. And he calls him to further responsibility. You know, Mark is always very blunt in his gospel and to the point. And I think he's pretty clear here. You know, he's saying to us that a disciple must do more than just get the name right. Peter had Jesus' name right. But we've got to do more than that. You know, you may call Jesus Savior and Lord, and I may call Him the same thing. But what do we really mean by that? You see, to call Jesus the right name is simply the first baby step that we can make along the way to following Him and His will for our lives. That's not the journey. That's the first step. His next few words tell us plainly what He requires here in this text. We read His three demands just a few moments ago. If anyone would come after me, let him do what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Notice how Jesus is very honest here. He doesn't sugarcoat it to have more followers come His way. He's very honest. If you're going to follow me, you have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross and you have to follow me. He lets us know exactly what He expects. You know, the great leaders are always those who are most honest. Churchill, in their time of need, stood before England. And what did He promise them? He said, you'll have nothing but blood, sweat, and tears. That doesn't sound very appealing, does it? Jesus calls on you and me to deny ourselves. That's what the body of Christ is all about. Disciples who follow their teacher and Lord. Just as Jesus was willing to lay down His life for His friends, we are to carry over that same attitude of service in our own lives because people need to see and feel and know that they're encouraged and supported and loved. And that's something that you do very well as a congregation. You know, those of us gathered in this place today, we know we are loved Whenever we're ill, whenever we're in the hospital, whenever we have surgery, whenever there's a death in our families, we we receive those cards, we receive those visits, those phone calls, sometimes food even. I know I've visited you before and you'll show me the stack of cards that you've received from people who are in this church. We know that we are loved. But there are a lot of people in our community who've never really experienced that kind of love. Our outreach committee is giving us opportunities to love some of these people who may not know the kind of love we experience. That committee has a great goal, by the way, that every single one of us this year in 2012 would participate in some kind of outreach program, event, service, whatever it happens to be. Whether that's helping with a Habitat build like we're doing in May of this year, or going on a mission trip this summer sponsored by our missions committee, or helping with the Dorothy Day Soup Kitchen that we do once a month on Thursdays, or helping with our Family Promise families who are here this week. You know, there's still room for overnight hosts to sign up to stay with those families. I mean, what a wonderful way to deny yourself. You have to sleep at the church instead of sleeping at home. It's real hard, sleep. (laughs) That's what an overnight host does. Or whether it's participating with a new outreach that we're going to be doing in April to uh, mentally handicapped Folks, or, or serving as a prayer partner for revitalization. There'll be all of those opportunities and more to deny ourselves and take up this calling from Jesus that He empowers within us to connect to the need around us and love others wherever we find them, to love them and be the church in this place. So we deny ourselves, but that's not all. We must also take up our cross. And here we need to think of Jesus carrying His cross beam through the streets of Jerusalem and all of the mocking that He received, all of those people who made fun of Him, who despised Him, all of the unkind things that were said, all of those people that hit Him and jabbed at Him, as he walked down the street with that cross beam upon his shoulders. Isaiah said he was despised and rejected by men. This is the picture Jesus paints with these words. The cross represents a voluntary laying down of our lives and a willingness to put ourselves into the category of those who are despised. And as we think about taking up our cross, let's talk about a few things the cross is not. It's not a piece of jewelry. It's not some decoration for military heroism, though voluntarily placing yourself in harm's way for the benefit of others is part of what this sacrifice of the cross is really about. This cross is also not some illness You know, sometimes you'll hear people say something like, well, this cancer I have, I guess it's just my cross to bear. No, it's not. That's not what Scripture is teaching. The cross represents oppression and hate caused by those who oppose Jesus Christ and His church. It's not in any way our bearing patiently the aches and pains of life in this fallen world. Paul understood what this means. He speaks to it in 1 Corinthians 4 when he says, Like men sentenced to death, we have become a spectacle to the world. We are fools for Christ's sake. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, We conciliate. We have become and are now as the refuse of the world. Paul says people that follow Jesus Christ are just like garbage. That's how despised and rejected they are. To live the way of the cross means that our way of life will foster rejection and ridicule because that's the way a sinful world always reacts to Jesus and the cross and even to His staying on the cross. You know, the people that day jeered at Him. You're the Son of God. If you're the Son of God, why don't you come down from the cross? They couldn't see that to be the true Son of God and to be the true Messiah of God, He had to stay on the cross for your sins and my sins and for the sins of the whole world so that death could be vanquished once and for all with the resurrection. So we deny ourselves... We take up our cross and we do what? We follow Him. Which means that we go where Jesus goes. Now think about all the places you read in the Gospels where Jesus spent time. He ate with the sinners. He ate with the publicans. He was with prostitutes, soldiers, pagans, the religious people. He was with those who had good hearts as well. He was all over the place. He spent a lot of time with sick people. Where did Jesus go? You see, wherever Jesus goes, we are to follow. And He had time for the neediest individual and also time for the seemingly most powerful person in the world, and everyone in between. He tells you and me to follow the way He has chosen, not the way we would choose for ourselves. He calls us to great things, the kinds of things He was willing to do Himself. You may be aware that when Abraham Lincoln was in the White House, He used to attend a Presbyterian church quite frequently. The name of that church was the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church. I think it was only about three blocks from the White House. And the interesting thing about that church is, and this is your trivia for the day, it was a combination of two congregations. That church was made up of the Old Second Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C., and also the F. Street F Street Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church Those two congregations came together to form New York Avenue and Lincoln would go and usually when he would attend worship he would sit back near the pastor's study not out in the congregation because he didn't want to cause a stir of everybody saying, oh, the president's here today, you know. So he just sat incognito where he could hear the worship and where he could worship as well, but not cause a stir. And on one occasion when the war was really causing great stress for him and he had the added grief of the recent death of his own son, he was there at worship that day. And as the worship concluded and people began to leave, the president also stood up where he was, back in his hiding place. And his aide said to him, Mr. President, what did you think of the sermon today? He said, I thought the sermon was carefully thought through, eloquently delivered. The aide said, so you thought it was a great sermon? And he said, no, I thought he failed. He failed? How? Why? because He did not ask of us something great. We can never make that statement about Jesus Christ. He calls us to say no to self and to say yes to Him. He calls us to take up willingly the cross He Himself bore. And He calls us to follow Him and His example to spend our lives for Him and for the kingdom and not keep them for ourselves. This is a great thing that Jesus asks of us. Now you may have noticed that the sermon title is On Whose Side Are You? I want us to think about that. May we always live the right answer to show ourselves, and more importantly, to show to the world around us whose side it is that we're truly on. For when when Jesus rebuked Peter, that's what he said to him. Get behind me, Satan, for you're not on the side of God. You're on the side of men. May our lives always reflect that we're on God's side to His honor and glory. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Dear Father, what a great challenge these words are. Because we know that's what sin is all about. It's about self. Righteousness is about God. Holiness is about God. Sin is about self. And so we know that this is a great thing, a difficult thing. To which Jesus calls us. And yet, while confessing that we in no way can hope to meet that challenge on our own strength, with our own hearts, we know that through the power and presence of your Holy Spirit, that you can indeed empower us to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses and to follow Him. And so we pray that You would give us a heart for You and not for ourselves. We pray that we might find ourselves in actions as well as words, being willing to stand with the despised and the rejected And we pray that we might spend more time in your holy word so that we might know more about where Jesus goes and what he does. Dear Father, we know that it says a lot about us, the people with whom we eat. And that's one of the real beauties of your sacrament unto us, and we thank you for it that we all come together from all backgrounds, all traditions, all manners of growing up. Some who've been in church all their lives and others who've just joined in the last month. And we thank you for the way in which in your word we see Jesus willing to eat with anybody. With those who love your church and those who could care less. And we pray that you would help us to see what it truly means in our lives to follow him. We thank you for your presence here today. We thank you for your Holy Spirit and for the way that he continues to work in our hearts and our lives. We thank you for the comfort that you have brought uh, to the family of Faye Hoke as well as Linda Neely's family at the death of her mother. We thank you for the women of faith that both of these people were. And we thank you that we can rejoice in their home going because you are the resurrection and the life. We pray that your spirit would continue to comfort these families and bring them your peace and your presence. And we thank you for all the ways that your church has shown and will show uh, love and encouragement to them in their time of need. We continue to pray as well for those who are recuperating from surgeries or, or have surgeries in their future. and We pray that they will be successful, and we pray for the doctors and nurses as they care for them. And we continue to pray for those who are homebound, those who are undergoing rehab, that you'll increase uh, their strength and their energy. And we continue to pray for our children, our young people, for their safety and their protection and for uh, opportunities for them to hear of the good news of Jesus Christ and that you will bring them early in their lives rather than later uh, to his throne of grace. And dear Father, we continue to pray for our president, for members of Congress, for those in the state uh, legislature, those on the city council and county council, all those who serve and make decisions that affect all of the people in this state, in this community, in this nation. We uh, pray for wisdom for them and that they might look to your will in all that they do. And we continue to pray for safety for our missionaries, for our brothers and sisters in the faith who are being persecuted. We continue to pray for the safety of men and women in the armed services. And we give you thanks for all of those who have been brought home recently and those continuing to come. And we don't want to forget those who continue to be deployed. We do pray for their safety and protection. And as always, we thank You for Your Word and to us. We thank You for the way that it provides light for us to live each day. And we pray that You'll continue to cultivate within us a love and desire and respect for Your Word and for the application of it as well. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. We want to reaffirm our faith in this God who does place this wonderful, challenging call upon us. We find that in the words of the Apostles' Creed. They're printed for you in your bulletin. Let's stand together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Our hymn is number 193, Go to Dark Gethsemane. Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you His peace, both now and forevermore. Amen.